Happy Halloween. From the Internet Says It's True. Welcome to the Internet Says It's True, where every week we learn something that sounds made up but is really true. Part of the WCBE podcast experience. My name is Michael Kent. This is episode 165. Welcome back. It's Halloween, so for this week I'm doing a special Super Rewind episode, which is going to be a compilation or a digest of sorts of several of our spookier episodes. And when I put this together, I realized I haven't done too many episodes that would be considered spooky, but here are five of them. And this is just going to be the story only, no quiz section this week, so stay tuned for the next new episode for the latest Yap Yap with me and a friend segment. And I was actually working on a new episode for this week, but then I was on the road touring, I got word that we've got some family medical issues, three separate family members in the hospital right now, all unrelated, but some of them are pretty serious, so I could use your good thoughts and vibes while we try to get everyone healthy. Back in podcast land... We got a nice new review. Check this out. And by the way, leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app is one of the best ways to help support this show. So if you're an avid listener and you want to give back but don't want to join the Patreon, you can go and support me by leaving a five-star review with a comment, like this one from username Saint Relic. Quote, Michael Kent is quick, witty, and a creative storyteller. You'll learn, laugh, think, and likely be the most interesting person at parties after listening. End quote. Thank you so much for that, Saint Relic. I appreciate the amazing compliment, and uh, leaving those reviews definitely helps other people find us when they're looking for a new show to listen to. If you want to go above and beyond, you can become a Tizitor for as little as $1 a month and get access to all the stuff there. I am once again asking for your financial support. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. So, um... Just type patreon.com slash my name. And, uh, you know, for that, you get stickers, access to ad-free episodes, videos of me talking to the guests every week, and more. That's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. So with all that said, you know what time it is. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. This first story was originally released as a bonus episode. And here it is, a story from right here in Columbus, Ohio. As many of you know, one of my newest hobbies is wildlife photography, particularly bird photography. I was at a a birding spot looking for a great horned owl, and this particular female owl hangs out in a tall pine tree in Green Lawn Cemetery here in Columbus. You wouldn't find the owl and the tree unless someone told you about it because it's a few hundred yards away from the nest, like three sections over. So there I am, crouching on the ground so I can get a perfect shot of this mama owl. She was sleeping, but every once in a while she'd open her eyes, so it was a game of what direction her head would be looking at that point, and me contorting my body to get the right position where there wasn't a branch or pine needles in front of her face. Then, I happened to look down, and I noticed a gravestone with coins on it. It was the only one around with anything on it. I had walked through the Jewish section of the cemetery to get there, and it's common for those memorials to have stones or shells or or toys placed on them, but not in this section. The only time I had seen coins placed on a grave was when I visited famous graves, like I stumbled upon the grave of Robert Frost once when I was in Vermont, or when I visited the grave of Dred Scott in St. Louis. They were covered with coins from visitors, just people saying, I was here and I'm visiting this notable grave. So my brain is thinking this must be someone notable. I know that Greenlawn Cemetery has a lot of notable people in it, but I wouldn't recognize most of their names. This headstone read, James Howard, 1879 to 1930. So naturally, I took a photo and I looked it up. 
James Howard Greenlawn Cemetery. What I found is shocking. Executed February 28th by electric chair at the Ohio Penitentiary. Here's the story. James Howard Snook graduated from the Ohio State University in 1908. I got my hands on a copy of the, the Makio or Macchio, which is like the Ohio State yearbook from, from 1908. And Snook's senior quote was, His friends they are many, his foes are there any? He was a founding member of the Alpha Psi fraternity at Ohio State and was on the pistol team. In fact, he was so good with a pistol, he went on after getting his veterinary degree to be on the United States Olympic pistol team and won two gold medals in Antwerp in 1920. He worked as faculty of the veterinarian school at Cornell for a short time, but settled down back in Columbus, Ohio. He was a professor at Ohio State's veterinary school and an accomplished equine surgeon. He invented a very famous tool called the snook hook. It was basically a little steel tool that aided in spaying animals, and it's still in use today. As far as his personal life, he was a quiet man. Not many of his colleagues knew him all that well. He had a devoted wife, Helen, and a child, a young daughter. In the summer of 1926, Snook was 45, and he met a 22-year-old medical student, Theora Hicks. Snook was head of the department and a licensed veterinarian, and she was an attractive young woman who studied under him and worked in the veterinary building as a stenographer. The two held occasional conversations that developed into a friendship and eventually, Snook gave Hicks a ride to her dorm room at Mack Hall. This led to more rides home and developed into longer rides into the Columbus countryside. They'd go for joy rides, have picnics, and he would take her shooting, which she took a liking to. He even bought her her own pistol. Her dorm room had previously been broken into, so having this Remington Derringer pistol helped ease her mind. They'd go to the New York Central shooting range on Fisher Road in Columbus to practice. Within three weeks, the two began a sexual relationship. She was more sexually advanced than Snook and often reminded him of this fact, telling him he should study up to be with her. And she meant that literally. She gave him sex books to study. Theora Hicks was an aggressive young girl who wanted what she wanted. In fact, she had another lover, Marion Myers, and she often told Snook that Myers was bigger and gave her more pleasure than he did. They started renting a small apartment on Hubbard Avenue to meet up for their affair. And while it was a complete secret to Snook's wife, it was apparently a well-known secret among the Ohio State Veterinary Department. As the affair went on, Snook's work started to suffer. He was smitten by the young student and started exhibiting erratic behavior just to be with her. She was a wild girl. She was demanding of his time and would demand he try things with her like drugs that she would force him to steal from the vet school pharmacy. She was a sadomasochist and dominated Snook, asking him to be aggressive with her. This all culminated on the night of July 13th, 1929, and will continue there in just a minute. Let's get back to the story now. So we're in the summer of 1929. James Howard Snook and Theora Hicks had been carrying on a secret affair for three years. It was hot and heavy, mostly a physical relationship. She hadn't been seen for a few days. Her roommates reported Theora missing. And on July 16, 1929, two teenage boys were walking around the New York Central Rifle Range in Fisher Road and found a body. It had been badly beaten and slashed. Her skull had been crushed. 
Her throat was cut. Well, it turned out the body was Theora Hicks. At first, the police looked to Marion Myers, who had been known to be Hicks's boyfriend. Well, he was quickly released because he hadn't dated Hicks in over a year. Eventually, the word got around that they should talk to Snook. Of course, he denied everything. Now, this was before Miranda writes, and after 19 hours of questioning, eventually the city prosecutor smacked Snook in the face and he started confessing to everything, every detail. Everything we know about this case, we know because of the court proceedings. Now, this court case was one of the most notable of the time because of the insane amount of graphic detail that was reported, both about the murder and about their sexual relationship. Here's what reportedly happened. On the night of July 13th, the two lovers were looking for a place to sneak away to. Snook suggested they go to the Scioto Country Club. Theora Hicks didn't want to go there because people might hear them having sex. She said, I would like to go someplace further where I can scream. He thought of the rifle range where he had taken her to go shooting. It was secluded and out of the way, so the two of them tried to have sex in Snook's small car at the rifle range, but he was unable to perform. Snook's words were, quote, it was unsatisfactory for both of us, end quote. Snook was running out of time and needed to return home to his family that night. He had plans to take his his family to his mother's house for the weekend. According to Snook, Hicks heard this and spun into a jealous rage. Now, it's important to remember, this is Snook's testimony about what happened, and it's just disgustingly full of him blaming his victim. Sadly, we don't have Hicks' version of the story because she's dead. So Snook said Hicks yelled at him and said, Damn your mother, I don't care about your mother. Damn Mrs. Snook. I'm going to kill her and get her out of the way. So she's talking about Helen here, James's wife. He then said she threatened not only his wife, but his young daughter, and to kill him too. Here's his testimony of what Hicks said. So this is him talking. She said, you have got to help me out. She grabbed open my trousers and went down on me, and she didn't do it very nicely, and she bit me and got hold of my privates and pulled so hard I simply could not stand it. I got hold of something out of this kit in the back seat of the car and hit her with it. I finally got her loose, very nearly twisted her arm off, and she sat up there a little bit and said, damn you, I will kill you too. She grabbed her purse and slid out of the car. I was in so much pain, and when I tried to straighten up, all at once it flashed through my mind that she was getting out, and I knew if she got out, she would shoot me. I hit her once, I hit her again, and she slid right out on the ground, and I followed her out. I got up behind her and hit her head once more with the hammer, and she went down and hit her head against the running board of the car, and that is all I can remember of hitting her. That's the end of the quote. So that's all from the court transcript. But he then claimed he didn't remember killing her or cutting her. The cut across her carotid artery was so precise that only someone knowledgeable in anatomy could have done it. Besides that, they had actually found quite a bit of evidence on Snook. At his home, they found a ball-peen hammer and a pocket knife, both splattered with Hicks's blood. He had washed his car out the day after the murder, but they still found blood and bloody clothes in the car. His wife couldn't account for his whereabouts on the evening of July 13th. The jury deliberated for, oh, about 28 minutes and found him guilty. On August 14th of 1929, he was sentenced to death and was executed by the electric chair on February 28, 1930. 
He was buried in sort of a secret way. His wife and daughter were obviously ashamed of what he had done, so much so they dropped his last name. And if you would visit Greenlawn Cemetery and ask for the information of James Snook, the cemetery office would find the following on a small burial record card. Snook, James H., number 68204, cause of death, legal electrocution. Then, in a handwritten note scribbled on top of the card, do not give out location. And that's why if you visit Greenlawn Cemetery and go to section 87 and happen to find plot number 243, you'll find a stone that is purposely vague, a stone that was carved without a last name to prevent people from finding it. It simply says, James Howard, 1879 to 1930. The next story is about a food. Pozole is a Mexican dish, and its origin is pretty crazy. Hey, Michael, it's Allison. I've been enjoying the podcast so much. I wonder if you're familiar with the sordid history of the Mexican dish pozole. I think if you look into that, you'll find out what I'm talking about. Thanks. You know how you try to read an online recipe and you have to scroll through pages and pages and pages of the history of all the food and the writer's first influence of that dish and how it reminds them of their first crush and how they met at the carnival and then they go on to describe all the things they saw that day and how inspired they were and eventually it gets to a story about how they fell in love and this was the first dish they made in their new home. If you're not familiar, I'm going to read one of these. This is the first recipe that came up when I searched for pozole. And I want to make clear, I am in no way making fun of Mexican culture. I'm making fun of this white lady talking about a recipe for pages before listing the ingredients. Here it is. Years ago, when I spent a summer studying Spanish in Cuernavaca, Mexico, my Mexican teacher told me that it was much easier to pronounce the language properly if you smiled as you spoke it. She was right. Good thing Mexican food is so delicioso. Because just thinking about dishes like this pozole makes me smile. It's somewhat of a feast pozole. I guess you could make smaller batches, but since you have to cook it for several hours, it just makes sense to make a large amount and then have lots of friends over with whom to enjoy it. I made this for my parents and they loved it. Mom told me she hadn't had pozole since she was a kid in Tucson. Lots of smiley faces around the table tonight. That uh, is the type of thing you read for like ever before they start listing ingredients. So being that I'm looking for the story behind Pozole, it's not the recipe I'm after. It's the history. So I actually have to read a few of these ridiculous intros to find what we're looking for. So let's see here. Oh, oh, I see what they're talking about. There it is. <laughs> okay, strap in. This one is nuts. First, let's talk about Pozole. Pozole is a traditional Mexican stew. Some people call it a soup, but I would refer to it as a stew with the basic ingredients of hominy and pork or beef with chiles, garlic, radishes, avocado, salsa, or limes, then topped with shredded lettuce or cabbage and chopped onions. It's a very popular dish with a long and rich history in Mexico. Hominy is just corn, but prepared in a special way. The white field corn kernels are dried then soaked in a solution with lye or slaked lime to break down the cell walls and soften the corn. After that, it's thoroughly cleaned and dried again. 
It looks sort of like a white, expanded, blown-up version of a kernel of corn. So hominy is the base grain of pozole, and it's cooked for hours in this stew of ingredients, chili peppers or a puree of chili peppers, and other ingredients to give it its unique spicy flavor. It's most commonly either red, green, or white, depending on the style and the region it's served in. It's a dish that's common at special events like New Year's Eve, Mexican Independence Day, birthdays, and other holidays. It's a warm dish perfect for a cold day, and it's got a really crazy backstory. For this next part of the episode, we're going to switch gears and move to a time and era from a long time ago. We're going to talk about the pre-Columbian Mesoamerican time and a people known as the Aztecs. So this was in the area we now know as the central and northern part of Mexico in the 14th, 15th, and 16th century all the way up until the Spanish conquered Mexico and the Aztecs in 1521. They were believed to have started as a nomadic people, hunters and gatherers whose name came from the name of their home, Aztlan, said in their language, which was Nahuatl. Many Spanish words have their origin in Nahuatl, and were then adopted by the Spanish after their invasion of the area. Words like chili, avocado, peyote, and chocolate all started as Nahuatl words from the Aztecs. They had a festival every February and March called Atlacahualo. The purpose of the festival was to honor Tlalo, the god of rain. In a harvest-based culture, praying to rain gods was important to them. Then once the food would be harvested, they would have a feast called, okay, give me a second with this one, and there was a lot of symbolism with this feast. Religious symbolism in foods is seen throughout history and throughout every major religion. For Catholics, there is of course the Eucharist, where the wine represents the blood of Jesus. And yes, I realize that if one believes in transubstantiation that this isn't symbolic, it's literal, but I digress. Did you know the shape of pretzels is supposed to represent a child's arms folded in prayer? Baklava is supposed to be made with 33 layers of dough representing the 33 layers of Jesus' life. The shape of dumplings has a Taoist beginning. It's supposed to represent money, like money-related objects such as Chinese measuring weights. And the Jewish Hanukkah treat of Sufganiyot is a pastry filled with jelly, and that jelly represents the miracle of oil, like when the oil lamp lit for eight days. Here's where things get a little weird, so trigger warning if you are squeamish. Like other Mesoamerican religions, the Mayans come to mind, the Aztecs practiced human sacrifice. So during that feast of Tlaxipayahualishti, they would offer to the gods ears of corn and a human sacrifice. Forty days prior to the sacrifice, a person would be chosen, often a prisoner from an enemy party which had been captured. Pieces of human flesh were carved and consumed. The heart was offered to the gods, and the rest of the body would be put into a ceremonial pot of pozole. When you read something like this, you have to be very careful because we know that gruesome stories like this one have been used throughout time to denigrate peoples. For example, an Islamic preacher on the Temple Mount in 2015 made the false and inflammatory statement that Jews cooked children's blood into their Passover bread. There are sometimes cultural feuds and prejudices that create harmful lies about culture. So as a white person, I wanted to be very careful about this story. But it is 100% true according to Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History. It's also referenced in a 16th century book called General History of the Things of New Spain, written by Fray Bernardino de Sahagún. 
it's worth noting that when the Spanish conquered the Aztecs, they outlawed the practice of cannibalism. In his book, Sahagún writes that they began using pork in the meal because of its similar taste to human flesh. Now, it's also important to say here that this wasn't how pozole was eaten all the time in Aztec culture. It was reserved for ceremonial times. Not that that makes it any better that they're eating people, but it wasn't all the time. When it wasn't a ceremony, the meat in the pozole was typically provided by a rodent called the tepes quintle, which we would now call a paca. It looks kind of like a miniature combination of a guinea pig, a deer, and a pig. So, non-ceremony, they're eating pozole with paca. Special occasion, they're eating pozole with people. So next time you enjoy a nice ham steak or a steaming bowl of pozole, you've got something to think about and an interesting story to tell your friends. Ready to take your videos and podcasts to the next level? Use real music from real artists in your content. As a content creator myself, and let's face it, most of us are in some way content creators these days, I'm always struggling to figure out a way to use music in my videos and podcasts without wanting to get my stuff taken down because of copyright claims. There are a few ways you can go about it, but I found this really great site, Thematic. When you go to Thematic, you can get access to free creative assets, sound effects, and copyright-free music in exchange for promotion. It's a really great deal, and it's super easy to use. You can sign up for free at hellothematic.com. You should check this out. It's actually pretty cool. Avoid copyright claims and keep 100% of your ad revenue with our claim-free experience. Songs are instantly matched to your content themes, saving creators valuable time searching for, you know, the music that's just right. So once again, check it out for yourself. Go to hellothematic.com or just use the deals link in the show notes. There was a time that humans used 100% organic products as healing balms and moisturizers for their skin. Well, I've partnered with an awesome company that wants to get back to those times. Fatco sells organic and responsibly made tallow-based skincare products. For centuries, humans used tallow in skin moisturizers and healing balms, but unfortunately, the topical application of these fats seemed to stop around the same time that animal fats stopped being considered part of a healthy diet. A lot of modern skincare products do more harm than good by stripping your skin of its natural oils. Let's change that. You can try them out now at fatco.com and get 15% off your order by using my promo code INTERNET. Go to theinternetsaysitstrue.com slash deals for the link. If you love listening to this podcast every week and you want to show your support, that would mean a great deal to me. You can do that by becoming a Patreon member. We've got members at all levels, whether you want to pledge $1 a month or $10 a month. Just think about the value that you receive from this show. And if you like the histories and the stories that you learn about or the jokes that you hear, and if you think that they're worth it, consider signing up. For that, you get every episode ad-free and a week early, access to bonuses like the unedited videos of the guest appearances, and 20% off all merchandise. You can sign up today at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. That's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. You know, when you think of Halloween, you might think of stuff like mummies and vampires. And fortunately, we've done stories about both mummies and vampires. Our next two stories are both about mummies. First up, a story about some of the weird stuff we used to do with them. Hey, Michael, it's Rob. I recently learned that people in England used to eat mummies. It is imperative that you get to the bottom of this. Does the internet say it's true? 
That is a great question, Rob, and thank you for the call. As I said, this one is gross, but I find it super interesting. I spent the week learning about it. Let's get into it. There's an 1815 painting by Martin Drolling that hangs in the Louvre. It's an interior painting of two women and a child sitting in the light of an open window. The women are sewing, and a child is on the tiled floor playing. The painting, called Interior of a Kitchen, is filled with dull earth tones, browns, and reds, and one of the notable colors in this painting is called Mummy Brown. It's a particular shade of brown that was very desirable at the time and very difficult to come by, because it wasn't just the color of mummies, it was made from mummies. Mummy Brown had a certain transparency and shine to it that was popular for depicting windows and shadows, and it was sold all the way up until 1930. The pigment used ground flesh of actual mummies mixed with other chemicals to create a paint that was known to all artists of the time. In addition to Mummy Brown, it's even rumored that Drawling used the blood from the hearts of monarchs to create some of the red hues in the painting, but that fact is disputed. Today we're mostly going to talk about mummies and why there aren't more of them. Now when this topic comes up there's usually an exaggerated statement like, quote, there would be way more mummies if people in Victorian England didn't eat them, end quote. And that's not really true. There's no evidence that the total number of mummies would be huge if it weren't for this particular type of desecration, and we'll get to that later. But yes, people ate mummies. As early as 5000 BC, humans were deliberately mummifying their dead. And while scientists have discovered naturally mummified human remains throughout history, we're talking specifically about people that were deliberately mummified, which is most commonly associated with Egypt. Mummification was a part of normal life and death in Egypt for both rich and poor Egyptians. And there's something about the way that people were mummified that was interesting to scientists and doctors in Victorian England. The flesh of the mummies was dark, almost black. Put a pin in that and we'll come back to it in a minute. A little backstory. Ancient scholars and medicine men used a substance called bitumen to treat a whole assortment of ailments and to protect plants from insects and used it as bookbinding. It was a dark, sappy, tar-like substance that formed in the Middle East from decayed plants and animals. In Persia, it was known as mumia from the word mum, meaning wax and they referred to this bitumen tar as mumia when they used it for medicinal purposes. Even Pliny the Elder, the famous Roman author and naturalist, mentions using bitumen to treat coughs and dysentery. Scientists later discovered that there is indeed some antimicrobial properties to bitumen and it contains sulfur, which is a biocidal agent. So it makes sense that when preserved Egyptian remains were discovered and appeared to be covered in this dark, waxy substance, they believed it to be bitumen, and because bitumen was known as mumia, that's where we get the word mummies. Now there's some dispute as to whether any of the flesh of the mummies actually contained any bitumen. Some of it may have been, especially earlier mummies, but not all of it. Most of the waxy black surface of mummified flesh was just the result of the mummification process and wasn't bitumen at all. Well, just like any natural resource, naturally occurring bitumen from the ground was becoming more and more rare. And, even if they were mistaken, the people who found these mummies had found a possible newfound source. It was around this same time that the actual definition of mumia began to change to include not only naturally occurring decayed material, but that taken of a preserved body. I think it's probably easy to see at this point where this is going, along with 
heroin for cough syrup, tobacco for headaches, and mercury for STDs, people started to believe that eating small bits of ground mummy flesh could be beneficial to their health. It was a very strange and disconnected form of what's known as medical cannibalism. There was a time when King Charles II of England sipped what he called, quote, the king's drops, and it was his own personal tincture that was made up of ground human skull suspended in alcohol. In the 1600s, a scientist named Thomas Willis believed that if you ground up a human skull and mixed it with chocolate, you could cure apoplexy. In Germany, doctors used human fat soaked in bandages to treat wounds. Can you imagine that? Using someone else's fat for your health? I'll be back with more after a quick break. Uh, hey, if you're listening on Patreon, this is the ad-free version, and I don't want you to miss it on the joke I just made, which was cutting to the Fatco ad, which are fat-based, animal fat-based products. Okay, that's all. Let's get back to the story. In Victorian England, consuming blood and tinctures made from ground human bone were up to date with the science and the beliefs of the time. It wasn't considered some sort of strange medicine. It's interesting to think about the fact that at this very same time, Protestants were persecuting Catholics for their belief in transubstantiation, and they thought it was outrageous that Catholics believed that they were drinking the blood and eating the flesh of Jesus. And here at the same time, people were consuming blood, fat, skull, and flesh of the dead for their health. Some of the health benefits that they believed consuming mummy powder would provide was vitality, protection against illness of the liver and spleen, curing paralysis, and the list goes on and on. It was like a snake oil of the time. So where did these mummies come from? Gentlemen, you're hired. We're sending you to bring back the mummy of King Rutentutin. You leave immediately for Cairo. See, I got an uncle in Cairo. He's a chiropractor. Well, it turns out the mummy trade was big business. English, Spanish, French, and Germans began working in the mummy importing and exporting business. Sometimes they'd buy and sell complete bodies. Sometimes it would just be fragmented pieces of mummified flesh. But as soon as this business arose, that meant that Egyptian tombs were also raided. Some were raided and stolen for display as oddities in museums, but many were raided and ground into powder for medicine and paint. Now, there's this idea that we would have a ton more mummies if the Victorians didn't eat them, and I've seen that argued. But I've also seen it argued that it's not necessarily true. Dr. Sarah Parsak is an Egyptologist and author, and she says in a Twitter thread, quote, Mummies are not rare because people ate them. A. Mummies are found all the time. See all media of mummies found. B. Mummies were used for paint plus as medicine in the 19th century, but there is a huge mythology around them. Countless mummies were lost to unethical mummy wrappings and were used as fertilizer. How many mummies were used for mumia? We cannot quantify. Only a small percentage of mummies lost compared to other reasons. Also, if mummies are so rare, how come my colleagues and I keep finding them? End quote. And then she added a TLDR. Mummies are cool, but learn about them from experts. And I have to say, I am a comedy magician who does a podcast. I'm not an expert, but I did read about this all week, so you don't have to. The practice of using mummies for medicine led to something even more sinister. The selling of fake mummies. People began robbing graves and selling corpses as Egyptian mummies. After all, mummies themselves were an extremely limited resource. Eventually, science proved that there was little benefit to the practice, medically speaking, of consuming mumia powder. So it's partially true. It's true enough to tell people. 
So if you're ever asked by a child why there aren't mummies anymore, you can look them in the eye and say with a serious face, it's because we ate them. Our next story is about one mummy in particular. It's another Ohio-based story, Eugene the Mummy. For the last several years of his life, Jeremy Bentham carried a set of glass eyes in his pocket everywhere he went. Bentham was an English philosopher, and he's widely regarded as the father of modern utilitarianism. His ethical theories about morality and happiness are still studied today. But Bentham had a bizarre notion about how his body should be treated after his death. He wanted to be dissected for science and then put on permanent display forever. And the glass eyes in his pocket were for that very reason, to give the mummified and stuffed version of Bentham the look of being alive. In practice, it did not go as planned. Bentham's head was the only part of his body that was preserved and it went horribly wrong. So in an attempt to comply with the philosopher's wishes, his bones were posed into a sitting posture, adorned with his clothing, and a wax head was placed on top. His real head, it was only partially mummified, was placed at the feet of the figure, and the entire thing can be seen to this day at the entrance to the student center at the University College London. The head no longer sits at the feet, it's now in a case above him, but it's pretty gruesome looking, and the wax figure looks like any wax figure, you'd never know that it contained the man's real skeleton. It's a strange case of the corpse of a human being displayed according to their wishes. But in Oklahoma in 1911, Elmer McCurdy was another story. Three Osage County Sheriff's deputies, along with a small posse of other men, had cornered McCurdy in a hay shed. He'd been accused of a train robbery. McCurdy was a known criminal and lifelong alcoholic. He set out to rob a train that was carrying $400,000 in cash. When he and his men stopped the train, that's when they learned it was the wrong train. There was hardly any money on the train they robbed, so they stole some whiskey and 46 bucks. And when the men cornered McCurdy in the shed, he'd been up all night drinking the whiskey he stole and coughing from his tuberculosis. McCurdy began firing a gun at the men, and they returned fire, killing him. McCurdy's body was taken to the local funeral parlor where his body went unclaimed. It seemed he had no next of kin, and back then, when the body went unclaimed, they embalmed it with an arsenic-based preservative that kept the body preserved for much longer than usual. And that's what Undertaker Joseph Johnson did. Then he decided to dress it in street clothes, put a rifle in its hands, and put it on display in the back of his funeral home. He charged a nickel for people to come and peer at, quote, the Oklahoma outlaw, the bandit who wouldn't give up. Johnson displayed the body and charged people to see it for the next five years or so, until two men claiming to be McCurdy's brothers showed up to take the body and bring it to California for burial. That was a lie. The two men really worked for a traveling carnival and promptly put McCurdy's body on display in their traveling sideshow tent. They billed it as the outlaw who would never be captured alive. My guess is that they did not tell the onlookers that the man they were looking at had only stolen $46. McCurdy stayed with the Pattersons, that, that sideshow, until 1922 and was then sold to a traveling museum of crime. He was displayed along with wax figures of Jesse James and Bill Doolin, and it went on like this, with McCurdy spending a few years here and there being displayed at random traveling museums. At one point, he was even displayed in the lobby of a movie theater to promote a film. The body was displayed as a, quote, dead dope fiend to promote the Dwayne Esper film Narcotic. Eventually, 
The life of McCurdy the mummy long outlasted what would have been the natural life of McCurdy the living outlaw. In 1967, it was featured in a David Friedman film, She Freak, and was displayed in a funhouse in Long Beach, California. By this point, most people didn't even know the figure was an actual human corpse. While filming an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, a prop master moved the body and the arm fell off. When they saw bone and tissue, they took it to the LA coroner's office and it took 10 years, but by 1977, McCurdy's body was finally laid to rest in the Boot Hill Cemetery back in Oklahoma. Concrete at least two feet deep was poured over the body to ensure it wouldn't be taken for display ever again. And that brings us to a similar story, one that happened here in Ohio. I'll tell you the story of Eugene the Mummy after a quick break from our sponsors. I'm going to preface the story of Eugene the Mummy with a disclaimer. This is an unsolved mystery, so if you're the kind of person who needs your stories to be wrapped up with a tidy little bow and a nice button on the end, I apologize in advance. That said, it's still an unbelievable story. A corpse that now rests in a simple grave in the town cemetery. If you visit the town cemetery in Sabina, Ohio, there's a grave that's often visited as a roadside attraction. It reads, Eugene, found dead 1928, buried 1964. Like the story of Elmer McCurdy, the corpse was left unburied for decades. So back in 1928, the body of an unknown black man was found on the side of the road. The story was that he was coming to Sabina looking for work, but he never made it. He had died of natural causes. When authorities went to identify the man, they had trouble. He carried no ID, no names anywhere on him. All he had was a dollar forty and a small slip of paper that read 1118 Yale Avenue. The police thought this was a clue to the man's home, so they went to the address, which existed in Cincinnati. It was a vacant lot. Now, apparently a man named Eugene lived near that lot, so they began referring to the deceased as Eugene, while the real Eugene just kept on living. Townspeople had claimed to have seen the man walking around the day before. They said he looked ill. While the story of the outlaw in Oklahoma was one of exploitation, for Eugene, the story is more about the desire to identify the mystery man. Littleton Funeral Home in Sabina received the body of the man and they embalmed it like normal, but they didn't know who to contact to claim it, so they put it out in an open shed near a bus stop behind the funeral home for people to see. Eugene was dressed and laid out on a couch for display. And if you remember back to the episode we did about the most kissed girl in the world in France, you may remember that it was a common thing in the old days to put a body on display when it was unidentified. So today that would be a super weird thing to do. We might just see an artist drawing of the face and they put it on the news. But back then, people didn't think twice about walking by this shed and seeing a dead body lying on a couch. Littleton really wanted someone to come claim the body. And no one did. 30 days came and went, and the funeral home was still displaying Eugene's body. Instead of being disgusted at the sight, the town came to think of Eugene as sort of a macabre mascot. Months went by, and Eugene was still on display. Then years. Eugene's embalming had now mummified him, and everyone in Sabina and surrounding cities knew about Eugene. Our final story for today is all about vampires. Over Ohio to see the mummy man of Sabina. And all the while, the man was never identified. 
Newspapers and television ran stories. No one claimed to know him. Occasionally, Eugene was the subject of pranks by local teens. They'd steal the body and take it to various places around town. Police would find the body and then call Littleton to come retrieve it. And this went on for 36 years. Finally, in 1964, one of those pranks led to the end of Eugene's posthumous career as a tourist attraction. Students at The Ohio State University in Columbus woke up to see a mummified man dressed in a sharp suit lying on one of the benches on High Street near campus. The story of Eugene by this point was pretty well known around Ohio, so authorities called Littleton Funeral Home in Sabina, an hour away, and asked if they were missing their mummified man. Turns out they were. It was after this, and believe it or not, it wasn't the first time Eugene had been brought to Ohio State for a prank, that the owner of the Littleton Funeral Home decided it was time to finally put Eugene to rest. They held a simple ceremony, and while Eugene had been a public figure in the town for decades, no one knew him in life, and not many people attended his memorial. He was buried without fanfare in the small Sabina Cemetery. His tombstone is a simple stone flat to the ground under a tree. Eugene, found dead 1929, buried 1964. It was later corrected to read found dead 1928. And if you don't know this story, if you've never heard it, you'd never know it was there. Besides maybe noticing that that gravestone is often covered with coins from people who have heard the story and made the pilgrimage to Sabina just to pay homage. 94 years later, no one has ever claimed to know the man that turned up missing. And at this point, it's likely that no one ever will. But to the people of Sabina, Ohio, his legend will live on forever. The internet says it's true. It was the mid-2000s when the archaeological superintendent of Veneto in Italy promoted a research project on mass graves. They were on an island just northeast of Venice, Lazaretto Nuovo. A few years ago, Jack White had an album and a song called Lazaretto, and I remember googling it then. It's a word for an annexed area for isolating undesirables. In the ages of plagues, it was necessary for people to be quarantined to these islands, but they used them for criminals and those deemed to be insane. Lazaretto Nuovo was the second Lazaretto in Venice. It literally means new Lazaretto, as opposed to Lazaretto Vecchio, meaning old Lazaretto an older and much smaller island that housed plague victims in the 1400s. Lazaretto Nuovo was a larger island, around 22 acres of land. It was established in 1468 when the Venetian Senate decided there needed to be more space to quarantine those affected by plague and the old Lazaretto wasn't big enough. It remained as a health quarantine until the 1700s when it started being used as a military fortification to protect the Venice Lagoon. It stopped serving any military function in the 1970s, but now the island is opened for archaeological and educational tours. It was one of those archaeological studies in 2005 that our story starts to take shape. An archaeological dig had discovered a mass grave from the plague. Hundreds of skeletons were discovered, but one in particular raised the eyebrows of researchers. A skeleton with a brick firmly placed in its gaping open jaw. There were no other bricks nearby. It wasn't a coincidence or accident. 
It was evident to the scientists that this brick had been deliberately placed there, so they set out to find out why. They were first looking at why those graves were there to begin with. The first Black Plague tore through Europe in 1348, and Venice was hit incredibly hard. They responded with these two lazarettos, the old one in 1423 and the new one in 1468. The new lazaretto also acted as a quarantine station for people coming to Venice from the sea. They could be checked for symptoms of the plague there before being allowed to come into the city. There were two additional plagues that hit Venice, one in 1576 and one in 1630. Most of the people who were sent to the island with plague never left. That helps to understand the mass grave, but not the body with the brick in its mouth. By measuring the bones, they could tell that the person was a woman who most likely died in her 60s. The researchers started looking around at burial practices around the world from that time period, and that's where we find out about the Shroud Eaters. In German folklore, the Nachtzerers, or Shroud Eaters, were a very particular type of vampire. They're a little different than the normal vampire we hear about. They don't become a vampire from being bitten or scratched by one, and they don't spread their vampirism to other people. But it's related to communicable disease. The first person to die from a plague is said to become a Shroud Eater. They were called that because they would begin by eating their own burial shroud. Then the Shroud Eater would feed on their own body. Finally, their loved ones and family members would become weak or die as the Shroud Eater was feeding on their life force from the grave. I found a couple other sources that said Shroud Eaters were created when a death occurred from suicide or by accident. The brick in the mouth was a practice that was put into place to prevent the person from eating their shroud. In the case of the body recovered in Venice, it's believed that the body was not initially buried this way, but exhumed and reburied with the brick. The likely explanation for this is when the body was uncovered, it was seen that the burial shroud had a hole around the mouth area and was assumed to have started to eat the burial shroud, and thus deemed to be one of these vampires. Another thing that would have clued them toward vampire is that parts of the body were thought to have continued to grow, like fingernails. The brick in the mouth would, of course, prevent the body from eating more of the shroud and would protect other people from losing their life force. Of course, all of this sounds pretty crazy, but there's a logical explanation for much of it. And we'll talk about that after a few words from our sponsors. So what's the truth about this vexing Vampires of Venice story? Well, we know that the body with the brick in the mouth was definitely uncovered. We know that that's true. And most accounts point to the brick not being there by accident, though some theories do state that it could have happened when dirt was being moved around on the island. I mean, this is an island that's been purposed and repurposed so many times, lots of buildings were built and demolished through the years. Most seem to think that the vampire story is the likely explanation for the brick. Of course, there's no evidence that anything like a vampire exists, but the folklore and the ancient beliefs are very true. There's an ancient book, De Mascation Moratorium in Tumulus from 1728. I'm sure I just butchered the pronunciation, but it translates to On the Chewing of the Dead in Their Tombs. It's quite literally a scientifically worded dissertation by Michael Ramft of Germany about this phenomenon of shroud eaters. We know that science evolves and improves with time, and before we knew how bodies decompose, it would make sense that when a body was dug up, the mouth would be the place that would show signs of decomposition. 
which would then affect the burial shroud in that area. The brain is the first organ to decompose, and if insects and critters, sorry, I'm, this is gross, were to have access to the body, that would be a pretty easy place for them to enter. Critters and insects also help to understand the idea of a shroud eater feeding on its own body. Now, I already mentioned how they thought that the nails continued to grow. It's just another case of people not understanding the science. What really happens is the skin sort of shrinks up and makes the nails look longer. And the same happens with the mouth to make the teeth look longer and open. And there's this idea of the vexed family and loved ones, right, that we talked about. Remember, we're talking about the age of the plague. And if you had the plague and you lived near people, there's a good chance that they would become sick too. And there were some really backwards ways of thinking about health back then. In the age of the plague, people were told not to bathe. This is before people knew about germs and bacteria. So it would make sense that they would see family members of the sick also getting sick. They would see these corpses with their long nails, hair, and exposed teeth, and just assume that these were the signs of a shroud eater. So this ritual of blocking their mouth with something like a large rock or a brick was born. According to Matteo Borini, an anthropologist from the University of Florence, quote, to kill the vampire, you had to remove the shroud from its mouth, which was like its food, like the milk of a child, and put something uneatable in there. It's possible that other corpses have been found with bricks in their mouths, but this was the first time the ritual has been recognized, end quote. So, while the internet says it's true, remember that there's no such thing as a shroud eater, just stupid humans who didn't know any better, and those of us here to tell the stories 400 years later. That is all for this week. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Happy Halloween. Here's the sound of a little ghoulie. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. To listen to episodes ad-free and a week early, support us on Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Kent. If you learned something just now that you didn't already know, go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That helps us a ton, because that's how the algorithm works. I don't know what an algorithm is, but just do it! See you next week for a brand new episode of The Internet Says It's True! The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help to make this show possible. Sean Brown, Joshua Endress, Dallas Ray, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Jim and Joanne Martin, Mitch and Andrew Joseph Kemplin, and the show's official Emperor, Kick Track. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge, and all audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17 USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Kent.